This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In Walking the Heartland, Gillian Sullivan talks to Liz Breslin about how place and space affect the heart and her essays about the vast Ida Valley, presented by Otago University Press. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Walking the Heartland, an hour in conversation with Gillian Sullivan. Um, my name's Liz Breslin, and it's my pleasure today to be interviewing Gillian. Um, I would like, first of all, to thank and acknowledge Otago University Press, who are the sponsors for this session. The sponsors for the Writers and Readers Festival make it possible that we can all sit here in conversation today, and so it's good if we pay attention to who they are. It would also be really good if we paid attention to our mobile phones. I will be the only one with a noisy mobile phone in the room. <coughs> My mobile phone will be noisy because Gillian and I have programmed REM's Losing My Religion to play at 4.50pm exactly <laughs> so that we can leave 10 minutes at the end for audience questions. <laughs> if you play any other songs, we'll get confused, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, So, as I said, it's my absolute privilege to be in conversation with Gillian today. Um, Gillian is a woman who wears very many hats, including Mm -hmm. a hard hat as a builder. Mm -hmm. Um, She is an environmentalist. She's a teacher. Joy Cowley, no less, called her that. She's Mm -hmm. a grandmother. Is it of nine? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, A COVID contact tracer a writer of 12 books, a former drummer in a band called Red Dress who opened for Chris Knox. Um, Chris Knox dedicated a song, actually, to Gillian and said that if he could have another drummer, it would be Gillian. Um, They also um, toured with The Clean and played in a car park expecting Lucy Lawless to turn up, who didn't. Um, If I was you and I had a question at the end, that would be a question I asked just saying. Um, The last couple of times Gillian and I caught up, we were um, on a building site where she was helping her son build a house just outside Queenstown. We had hot chips and we talked about this session and Gillian's hopes that it would be a fun session for everybody in the audience where we spoke about um, Map for the Heart, which is her new book with Otago University Press. Um, and just all had a great engaging time together. The time before that that we caught up, we were actually in a Tesla on the main street of Otrahua, going <laughs> zero to faster than you're supposed to go on the main street of Otrahua, with Gillian's mum's very precious casserole dish um, in the back of the Tesla. We'll also be taking questions about that at the end. Mm. Um, but for now, I think we will concentrate on um, Gillian's essays from the Ida Valley. I'm sure some of you already have the book. If you don't have the book, of course, it's available from the university bookshop outside. Gillian's going to start for us by reading from the book so we can all really enjoy hearing her words in her voice. Um, and she's going to read us a piece called <coughs> Privileged Job, which is um, possibly about the kind of caring that... Um, we may not traditionally associate with Gillian as an environmentalist. So I will hand it over to you. Were you not taught not to fold the edges down? 
I was taught not to fold the edges down. I was taught not to write in the books. I was taught not to read them in the bath. I do all... I I love this book. I want to take it places. This is my copy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, A privileged job. When the job seeker's representative asked me what qualifications I had for a job, I told her I had a master's degree. Don't put anything highfalutin like that on your job sheet, she told me. You're only going to end up a cleaner. I think of that sometimes when I'm scrubbing toilets in the middle of the night in my job as hospital aid in a small country hospital. And if I ever need a reminder that this is a privileged job, I think of the young woman I was on shift with one night telling me in the kitchen, one night my friends hassled me. They said, you have to clean up shit. And they laughed at me. And I said, yes, I do, because those people need someone to help them. And then they went quiet, and they haven't hassled me since. So that's what we do. We do things for people when they can't manage by themselves anymore. We shift a pillow under their head to help them sleep. We wheel them to the toilet when they can't walk. We do whatever needs to be done. We take their teeth out and clean them and put them back in the morning. We feed them when they can't remember what a spoon is for. When they're dying, we make them whatever they feel like, even if it's custard or poached eggs for days in a row. We shave them, wipe their faces, pluck their chins, put their lipstick on. We remember how they like their tea and which socks are theirs. We remember who they were when they first came in and could tell us stories of the Chinese miner up on Mount Buster who lived in a tin hut on the slopes of a family farm and invited the farmhands to dinner one snowy day when it was mustering and who threw pieces of gold out to children on the streets of Arrowtown. We remember they had a little brown and white dog they loved or a Palomino quarter horse. On the walls behind their beds are photos of their farms, the tussock and their beloved dogs. There are wedding photos, grandchildren photos. A man may seem odd, alone, without history, then tell you this is the date on which his wife died 10 years earlier and how much he misses her. What you begin to understand is that this is all loss ahead of you too. Loss of your home, of your land, of your partner, loss of the most faithful dog you ever owned, loss of your garden, of your favourite tree, loss of your memory perhaps, of all these things. We ask them about their lives or we remind them. We play Brahms Hungarian dances to a woman who once taught music and she smiles. We tell another how beautiful her fingers are and she tells us, I played the violin. It's the sort of job you do when you haven't got many options, when you didn't further your education or you did and you couldn't get a job or you choose to live somewhere where there are no jobs. You girls should get paid $1,000 a week for what you have to do, one woman said. We get paid just over the minimum wage. We get paid for changing briefs, cleaning toilets, putting steridant on teeth and pulling socks on feet. Being kind and remembering is the extra option. Being kind is what reminds you of your humanness, your shared trajectory. I didn't think my life would come to this, one man said as I guided him to the bathroom. I thought I would just drop dead of a heart attack. And sometimes they do, right in our arms. 
Those that don't are the ones we look out for, thinking of our own fathers or mothers living far away, thinking of, thinking of what could be up ahead for each of us. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> mm. Thank you. Mm. I think there's so much to love about that, how it goes straight to the heart of the mm. care, you know. And mm. although you're talking about loss, what you're also doing is, is capturing stories as well. So those people, although they have lost those stories, you have taken care of them yeah. in the same way as when mm. you're taking care of them with the custard or you're noticing the piano playing fingers. And I think it's a beautiful thing that mm. you do in all these essays is that you take the losses and, and, and you show us these losses so poignantly and somehow like they become a gain as well you know there's this real noticing that mm. happens all the way through them um I want to talk about another one of the essays which is when I was writing these notes I was like <coughs> one of my favorite essays and, a, and another one of my favorite essays and another so this is another one of my mm-hmm. favorite essays in there which is the barefoot running essay mm-hmm. which again you use different voices in there to talk about love and losses and gains and that's very personal to your family that particular story mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about the writing of that for us? Okay, so um, um, so I wanted to write about uh, being a single parent. There, there is an anthology coming out because deadlines are so good for writers. And sure. so they put out a call and so you've got a, a theme and a deadline. It's a winning combination. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to write, my mum was a single mum in the 60s, and um, which was weird for us because... It was a like you wouldn't you'd lie about it you you wouldn't want to tell people and then um, I was a single mum um, and then my one of my daughters is a single mum with three kids so um, I was going to write about that and actually Brian was the one who's Brian Turner who said why don't you um, give your kids a voice and um, why don't you ask them what they think of it. Scary, yeah. Mm. So, <laughs> and how did that go? Asking them about it. Um, <clears throat> I told them it was for an essay, so upfront, mm-hmm. you know. And I asked them questions, emailed them, and they um, all wrote back. And um, it's my favourite essay too because yeah, it's so amazing to um, you know you live a life and you make choices and it has consequences on people, but then to let the people who lived through that life talk how it was for them yeah, and the consequences in their life. Yeah, handing them the power. Yeah. yeah. And also they hadn't talked to each other about some of these things and they had such different stories of the same events. Yeah. Um, and my daughter, who's the single mum, has had a lot to do with um, teenage girls from, her, from other single mums. And for her that was really important. And um, to look after them. And she's just emailed me today that at 40, she's just been accepted into the police force to be, and she really wants to work with women and children. So, yeah. Trying to, doing that line all the way back to what it was like for her in the family where it was quite difficult at times. Yeah, because she had the example of you doing the same thing, going out and fulfilling your work and then you had the Mm. example of your mother doing that and what was really interesting to me as well in that essay how some things have changed over those three generations and some things absolutely (coughs) haven't and the and Mm. 
one of the great things about that essay as well as your others, it's kind of like the braiding of a river. Is we're, mm. In a way, we're left to draw our own conclusions through that, through the different voices in that essay. Yeah. Really. Yeah, because yeah. mum, um, there was no DPB in those days. She had four kids. Dad went off for the his badminton partner. Mm. <laughs> and wasn't it the talk of the town? It was. Yes. I was at a poetry reading, the first one I ever went to with Brian's, and there was a woman there from my hometown. And I said, oh, I'm from Macedon and, and I'm a master's. And she said, oh, are you, are you George's daughter? I remember that scandal. And it was like, <gasps> how many years later was like that? Like 40 or something. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, that's how big, like, being a single parent was in those days. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but um, so mum, had, there was no DPB, so she asked the education board for a job teaching because she was a teacher. Mm. And they sent it to a small country town. Well, they didn't want a single mum. Mm. And so they got a petition up for the, um, uh, to the education board to try mm. and... I mean, it's that point where, like, mum's a, you know, a mum and a person and mm. taught choir, but suddenly your husband leaves and you're not good enough to be wanted to teach. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Positioned so, really differently. Yeah, so she said, I'll teach them something, she said. Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll teach their children to sing. And she had this wonderful choir that she toured all around with yeah. all the farmers' kids in the choir. Yeah. Do you... Trace your music, your love of music to her? Uh, yeah, so she, she threatened me to sell my pony if I ever failed a music exam. <laughs> so, <laughs> did, did you? It actually ever... works, that technique, but it's not very nice. <laughs> no. And no. did you ever <clears throat> fail a music exam? No. 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 Good. But, but I said to myself, I'll never do that to my kids. So they gave up music. Um, did they have ponies? Yeah, I would never say that to them. Okay. Mm. Mm. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think that shows there's no right answer in parenting, right? No. I mean, that's one of the things that that could yeah. possibly show. What did, I'm really curious, what did they make of the <clears throat> essay with their words in it after it had gone to print? Because it's one thing to know, oh, yeah, my words will be in an essay, uh, yeah. but afterwards. I don't know if they've read it. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, and my youngest daughter never reads anything I write, she said. Mum, you, you're always putting family in there. It's just... So I, I sent her one essay and I said, you're safe with this. Like, there's no family. And then she went up she said, <laughs> but Mum, there was like your stepmom. And there was like... It's like I... It's so deep in me, I don't... Even when I think it's not there. Yeah, absolutely. But, but the cycling one, there's no family. No. No. There is bikes. Bikes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, would you like to say more about the cycling one? Uh, I just decided to write a blog over a year of cycling because oh. Otirihua is the hottest and coldest place in New Zealand. So shit happens. <laughs> yes. So some days you're biking through a flood and sometimes it's snowing or sometimes you're almost being blown off and a farmer drives past and yells out, you're mad, you idiots. Yeah. And so I thought it would be interesting to capture a whole year of that. Yeah. And, um, and it was really interesting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. For me. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also reading it is very interesting as well. Because um, we only go the same... We were we, we just... Yes, Summer, winter, yeah. yeah. Every time you go, you're mad. You're yeah. mad. Yeah. Do you ever, and you tell yourself Mostly that Brian sometimes. Mostly Brian is mad. Yes. Yeah. 
I wasn't saying yes that I agreed with that, Brian. I was saying yes that Gillian said that. Yeah. Just yeah. saying. Um, so another thing that is at, very much at the heart of this book mm. is the wild and free or the wild and not so free places. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talked about this, we talked about um, one particular passage that um, is very much a call to action about about the rivers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to read that for you because sometimes it's nice for a writer to hear their words in someone else's voice mm. as well. You know, so should I tell them I walked the river? Please, you tell so them. Do they that. need that? Okay. Yeah, and I'll find the page. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> so the, the, the regional council um, needed to walk the river with the scientists and count every step, like every footstep. And so they put out a call <clears throat> because they had it all organised with where cars could be left and that. So it made it really easy to walk the river, which was seven days of like eight or nine hour days walking. Um, so they put that call out. And um, for anyone to do it. So mostly it was the scientists and Brian and I. <laughs> um, but an amazing experience. And then Brian and I went back and wa- walked three of the tributaries from the mountains to the beginning and as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I have a question about the walking of it after okay. the All reading right. of this, if yeah. that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm changed by the river. When the time comes, I will get up again and speak. I'm speaking now, but I have seen how humans stand apart from the natural world and say, this is not us, but for us. To say the river has rights and needs. To say the river deserves our responsibility to further generations. To say the river is one being from mountain torrent to the wide luminous stretch between shingled banks is to go against those who have the voice of power, against those who say we need the courage to dam the rivers. I have lost my faith in those with power. What will happen to our rivers, to the rivers, not our rivers? What will happen to the Manuherakia? Can we lie down on the river's banks among the slime and silt? Can we glue ourselves to the pivot irrigators? Can we stand on the river banks with signs? Or shall we walk the river? Yes, each one who would use it, who desires its strength and bounty, must walk its length. Not just gaze upon it, not say without knowledge, this is not a terrible river. Know the river. Be with it along its whole length. Mayors, do this. Councillors, do this. Scientists, do this. Those who love to look upon a river, do this. Young people, do this. So you will know what is being drained from your future. Mm. Mm. Thank it's you, Liz. A, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> It's a beautiful piece of writing. And one Mm. thing I love about that particular passage is like it's a call to action to people. It's like, this is what we have. This is what we stand to lose. This is me standing here telling you. And Mm. 
that's really hard to do well, you know, without sounding um, holier than thou or without sounding... And I think you managed to do it so beautifully in, in like, bringing people with you onto the river. I think that's... Mm. Yeah, that is lovely. And in the writing of it, I want to know how that works for you with this essay. Like, you were walking there for seven days. Was this fermenting as you were doing that? Did you make notes? Did it come after? Like, how did the writing and the walking, how do they work in together for you for the Oh, essays? okay. So when I was walking, I had a um, piece of paper and pen. Yeah. Um, but sometimes we, we would walk for four hours without stopping. Yeah. So you're trying to remember things, or you're trying to walk along and try and write things. And um, it's... It, was, it wasn't as easy to get it down, but I've got all these odd bits with things because watching a heron come into land, if you don't write that down at the end of eight hours, you might not remember it. So I, I did try to write notes down. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there was one part where I woke up early in the morning and I was staying with the grandkids yeah. and I was trying to write before they came in and then they all just piled into the bed, and I just kept writing. And so they they started asking questions, and I wrote that. So that was happening as it. What do you call that? Where it's just like reality TV or something. Or yeah, let's call it that. Yeah. So, so you're like so you basically are Gillian Sullivan, reality TV star in your own show of your book in the bed with the grandkids. But they exactly. were really knowledgeable. I, I think they must be taught well because. Um, they said, why, what are you writing? I'm writing about the river. Why are you writing about the river, Grandma? Yeah. And I, Good questions. And I said, because I care about it. Yeah. And then I tried to be all clever and said, and your river, um, the Kauru, you know, flows into my river. And, and Phoenix, who was seven, he goes, my river is the shot over. Right. But, yeah, I didn't even have it right. And then... And then um, yeah, so that was so. There's all different ways, and there's mm. different techniques in the. And then, because I'm <clears> curious <throat> in this as well, because some in this book, some you have some poems, you have some prose sections, you have some, mm. you know, like the essay. The essays are very fluid, like that. And then, did as you were writing and walking, did the form in any way suggest itself, or did that come later in the writing and the editing of it? Um, the f- no, it's very difficult to know. I, I always just try to go with the gut feeling or it wasn't really planned out. I had no idea. I had, And we walked the river. We didn't start here and walk here. Like We had to base it on flow, so we would walk this section and then, you know, would j- even the sections all jumped around. Yeah. And then we would be up in a tributary and then so it was a big mess anyway. Mm. <clears throat> Um, I'd gone up north to look after. It was a caregiving job for a week. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, mostly I just had to be there. And I, so I wrote the essay in Featherston, just locked in a room, just how do you make sense of the, all those bits of the river and how do I bring it together? You, then you just have to go by intuition. Yeah. But yeah. again, the, the same as we were talking about before, I think you bring it together beautifully in that way that you do, you, you do, you know, absolutely we're clear of the, the, the political stance, but also you're not telling people, you're bringing people and you're bringing all the threads mm. in and all the quotes and the bits of um, poem. And I know in that same section you've got a quote from Brian and then from, is it Wendell... Wendell Berry. Yeah. And, so and Mike Joy. Yeah. yeah. So all mm. those people, you bring their words in as well. Mm. Yeah. 
I'm curious um, as to what has happened. Here we are in book world. What has happened in um, um, real life world with the river, like with after the walking and after the noticing and the mayors and the councillors and all those people? Has has anything changed for the better or what's the... Um, well, we've just, um, some of us here in the audience, we've all just been to the environment court. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Manaherakea was a gold mining river. So back in 1860, it was allocated for mining, for sluicing. Yeah. With no, no one had any idea then what a river needed. And so it's over allocated, the most over allocated river in New Zealand. And 30 years ago, the regional council realised we have to try and save the river. So in 30 years' time, they just kicked it down. In 30 years' time, 1st of October 2021, we will reset the river at a minimum, at a flow that will save the river. But in the meantime, every... Oh, um, no, no, carry back on. Back up the bus a bit. No, 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 no carry on. I'm just like, I, did they have a magic wand? How are they going to do What was the bit <laughs> that's they were going to do in the... Yeah. That's what the regional council were relying on, the magic wand. They, that's, yes. Yes. Amazing. Because they didn't do the science over those 30 years. So that come 1st of October, they would have the science to know, but they didn't do it. So they haven't found a wand, <laughs> and there's no, and they've they haven't done anything. They've started now, yeah, and they've got and they've got really good scientists, yes, but they don't know enough on the first of October to reset it, and all the irrigators' permits are coming up, and they need to know how much water they can get, but we don't know enough. So, Plan Change Seven is to to put it all on halt for six years. Another six years while they do the science. That they said they were going to do 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to go to court to support that, Mm. that yes, we have to put a halt on it because we don't know. Mm. But it was basically only the environmental groups. Um, But anyway, everyone made submissions on how much they need the water for their business. Yeah. And I can understand that because that's their livelihoods. 100%. Um, but I, I got up and read parts of my essay. Yeah. <laughs> because I wanted to evoke the, the river for the judge. And so, um, so I read out bits with the smell and the, like really literary pieces. Because you used a beautiful phrase about it before. No <clears> one <throat> thought about what the river needs. And so when you were speaking to the judge, that's yeah. what you were evoking, right? Yeah. So... Yeah. To try and bring it to her, yeah, the river. Well, there was yeah. three judges, but one main judge. Anyway, we'll see how that goes. I think we will win this. That they, we will win it. They will kick it down six years. But come six years' time, it's going to be huge. Yeah, It'll be a huge fight. And ongoing. Yeah. How do you keep heart in that? Well, I just think about, the, I mean, there's environmentalists all around the world who just, like, get murdered. Mm. I mean, there's people always fighting, so, um, and there's people like Brian who've been doing it for 40 years, and I don't know, it, it's so hard sometimes. Mm. Like, it, it is really hard to keep going. And after I walked the river, it almost finished me <laughs> as an environmentalist. I almost, like, didn't want to fight anymore. Yeah. 
but thank you temporary. for fighting yeah. and for writing about the fight because mm. for those of us who don't or can't or won't walk the river it is a, it is a way for us to to mm. find you know mm. find ourselves and find itself some mm. you know somehow that we wouldn't otherwise do it so it must uh, be exhausting <laughs> so mostly what environmentalists do um, this is what it seems like for us is you just write boring you're just always writing submissions mm. but it, it takes time to read through it and then to do it and you can do it you you don't have to be knowledgeable. You can write from your heart. Like Brian would do, po- write, put his poems in. And, um, yeah. But I think it's just being aware what the councils are doing and when they ask for people to make submissions, make submissions. Making them, yeah. Even if you don't know much, just otherwise your voice is drowned out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So that's... We'd like to be, like, tying ourselves to things, but... that. What would you tie yourself to? <laughs> it's not a question here. I'm just curious now. Like, what could you possibly tie yourself to? I don't know. Any ideas? Like, <laughs> no, but they're our neighbours. So. Yeah, and that's we're, really, we're all like cleaning toilets together and things. That's yeah. really tricky in a small place. Like, yeah. Population twenty six, thirty five. Oh, I'm sorry. Population thirty five. <laughs> yeah. Um, It is like how to be a community, which Mm -hmm. we believe in, is to be community. But how do you be in a community when you're like their worst nightmare? Mm. Environmentalists who are writers (laughs) coming to your district. Mm. But how do you develop that that respect for each other? So it's really where we're all working hard at it, Mm. I think. So we just keep turning up to the working bees and... Sweating alongside each other, yeah, to say we are a community, and here we are showing up doing the work, yeah, yeah, and And sometimes you're doing the same work, and often, yeah, yeah, it's a great tricky, (laughs) it's a great community in a way where they've always taken care of each other, yeah, and now we just have to stretch that to. Maybe in the world it's time to do a few things differently. Mm. Is that working? I think so. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're styling it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as well as walking rivers, mm-hmm. writing books, building houses, mm-hmm. you built your own straw bale place, which um, is beautiful. Well, I, <clears throat> my son-in-law is the builder. Mm. I mean, I couldn't go out there and build a straw bale house. You know, like Sam had to tell me how to do everything. Mm. You actually did use your hands to build a house, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. So, and and he would make me do like, terrible things, like my kids would say, because there's rules about it now. But yes. We, yeah. <laughs> yes. But we would. He would have me up on a three meter high beam above the concrete floor, mm. nailing in joist hangers. Well, how are you supposed to hold the nail and hit and hang on? So I, I said to Sam, I'm not happy up here, Sam. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you better get happy. <laughs> did, you, did you get happy up there? Never. Right. And he goes, I, anyway, I went to see Brian and he said, look, as a mountaineer, you need three points of contact. Mm. That's it. You'll always be safe. And so I worked out. Two feet on the beam, mm-hmm. and I had a sun hat on, hat leaning against 
the other beam. Gillian! That's your three points of contact. And then you've got your hand for your... And once you get it in, then you can hang on and then bang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now they put um, nets. They have to put nets. Yes. But anyway, I said to Sam, it's all right, I've got it sorted. We have three points of contact. And he goes, you don't need three, you only need one. Ah, it's like this on the beam. <laughs> Honestly. So, <coughs> on your website, where you say that you approach writing like building a house... Mm-hmm. Is it about the three points of contact or is there other it things? It could be. It could, oh, it could be. be. Because you've got... So Gillian, I don't know if you've all visited Gillian's website, <coughs> but you can actually go on her website. She has a creative writing course that you can access from her website, which is called Write Before You Think. And one of the sort of overarching um, metaphors in there is the building of a... Um, mm. building of a story like the building of a house. But um, do you want to say a little bit more about that without giving away the entire content of your course? Oh, no, I, I'll give away my entire content. Okay, great. <laughs> it's a short course. It's not like... Um, it's, and I don't do anything with it. My son got me to do it. He said, you should be on Udemy. Okay. And you should do something short because people only want, have got time for short things. So mm. six videos... And then lots of other work. But I don't want to undercut anyone else. But anyone who pays to come and listen to me talk can have a free course. So you just have to... And they're actually only like $10 US, so it's not a big deal. Okay. So if anyone, so anyone just here email who wanted me. to do your course... Yeah, you yeah. can just email me and I'll send a free link. That's very nice of you, yeah. Jane. And I, I always give it to students and to younger kids... Yeah. Give us a little teaser of one thing that we might learn from it. Ah, well, it was um, the same as what Diane Brown was and um, Michelle, Michelle, Michelle yeah. was saying about don't think things too much. So it's called Right Before You Think mm. because it's about I'm a, I'm a real fan of um, writing for 10 minutes without stopping, outracing your editor, and, and, and it's amazing what you can write. So you just set the timer, make yourself write for 10 minutes. And you're not allowed to lift your hand up. You've got to keep going even if you write, I don't know what to say. But you can sometimes end up with an amazing paragraph. Yeah, right. And I've, and I've had business people say, oh, I do my business reports like that now and it's, that's worked really well. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could like be a business teacher or something. How you could, yes, yeah. yes. Mm. I hear there's money in that. Mm. When, you, um, <laughs> when you did the demonstration of it, you demonstrated like that. So do you write by hand or do you write like this? Um, I used to mostly write by hand. Mm-hmm. But it's just getting like... To, you run out of time to type it up, so sometimes I do write straight on to straight the onto that. Straight onto that. Yeah. But same rule, not without stopping. Yeah. Mm. Okay, cool. Mm. Um, when we met before, we discussed that we might spend some time talking about some of your favourite books. Oh, okay, yeah. Because this is always <clears throat> a thing that I don't know about you, but I'm always fascinated in. Like, what people who are writers are often readers. Where do they get this love of words from? You know, like, where, where, is our, where are our first words mm-hmm. from? So I guess Gillian and I have talked about that a little bit um, before. The um, one that she mentioned, which I don't think you've got here, was the first New Zealand Whole Earth Catalogue. 
Oh, yeah. I don't know if any of you know of this. 1972, um, and it came in at... I did some research. It came in at number 73 on the spin-off's top New Zealand books ever. They called it a hippie Bible ahead of its time, sensible diets, energy saving, sustainable living, generally being cool and not an asshole in relation to the planet. The book was everywhere for a good 10 or 15 years in communes, in cheap flats and in jails. <laughs> Should you want a copy of it, at 1972 it cost $4.95. If you can find a copy these days, it will cost round about $125. Mm-hmm. In case you want to know, um, a book called Somebody's and Nobody's, which I believe is by Brian Turner, came in at number 71. And um, the spin-off said, those bloody turners of Dunedin, all mouthy and opinionated and sticking their beaks in. (laughs) Who the hell do they think they are? Brian provides some answers in this affectionate, honest portrait of his family. There you go. So he actually came higher up than... Than the um, whole of his catalogue. Yeah. Which is jails and... Yes, and communes and your house. And have have you seen um, stickers saying the hippies were right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because they were. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you've got a few. So Julian's right. got a few of the books that have influenced her here and um, is going to share a little bit from mm. some of them. Okay. So my friend Flicker, 1943. I don't know. <laughs> Who's read it? Anyone read my friend Flicker? <laughs> yes. Oh. It's the most beautifully written book. about Isn't it? A, yeah. About a boy who longs for his father and... That sense of a child longing for their parent mm. is, goes, goes through all my <laughs> novels. Mm. And um, so anyway, I'll just read the short passage. Yeah. It's about a boy w- wanting his dad to understand him or like him. But, you know, it's um, so Ken is a 10-year-old boy and they live on a ranch. So there's lots of landscape and stuff. Yeah. So <clears throat> at the breakfast table, his father was waiting to hear Ken clatter the rest of the way downstairs. I bet he's looking at the duck, said Howard, who's his brother. What duck? On the landing. He looks at it for an hour sometimes. Howard, repro- reproved Nell. He never looks at it for an hour. Well, a long time. Seems like an hour. In God's name, McLaughlin's voice was rising. What duck on the landing? My Audubon print, said Nell, the one that hangs under the clock. Ken likes to look at it. Ken, roared his father. And hastily, Ken's sturdy shoes clattered the rest of the way down the stairs and he came into the kitchen, his hair meticulously parted and slipped down and his face sullen. What did you stop on the landing for? Ken opened his napkin and looked down embarrassed. I was looking at the duck. The duck out the window? The duck in the picture there. There was an amused glint in Nell's eyes as she helped Ken to oatmeal. Didn't you know we were at breakfast? I I didn't think, finished his father. Ken didn't look up or make any reply. He'd known it would be like this. Yeah. (laughs) So um, when I looked at that and looked at the – this is um, my book, What About Bo, about a boy, a 10-year-old boy. Mm. Uh, who wants his dad, and uh, in My Friend Flicker, of course, it's his love for his horse. Mm. So it's that love for an animal yeah. that 
get, sustains a child. Yeah. yeah. And how fascinating you can trace it now from when you were reading that as a child and then what yeah. you wrote as yeah. an adult. Yeah, and with a, a single mum with boys who wanted their dad, I guess. Yeah. 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 So, um, so Jack stepped out of the warmth of the porch into the drizzle. He tugged the sleeves of his parka down over his wrists. Dad, he called. His father walked out of the barn but ignored Jack. The man was dressed in a long black oilskin coat and had a shepherd's crook in one hand. Jack forgot about his parker and ran down the path to meet him. Dad, can I come and help you? Rob unhooked the orchard gate and shut it behind, leaving Jack in the driveway. Stay inside and help your mother, he said. She doesn't need help. She said I could ask you. Go and do your homework then. It's raining. Look at your coat. You'll catch a cold. I haven't got any homework, Dad. Dad. And then... Yeah. And, um, yeah, the boy, the boy that longs for his dad. Yeah. Yeah. It's lovely to see how those two pieces speak to each other, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Not, not that I thought about my friend Flicker, but it obviously had a, a, a deep effect on me. Yeah. And it's like we were talking about before, all of those things, you know, they all become part of what the, yeah. what you do as a writer and as a person, and it just all becomes part of the work. Yeah. What else have you got? Oh, so, so Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was the book that, I guess that was the turning point to, to, be in a, to think about living organically. And, and you said you read that first when you were 21. Yeah. 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 Um, the Earth's vegetation is part of a web of life in which there are intimate and essential relations between plants and the Earth, between plants and other plants, between plants and animals. Sometimes we have no choice but to disturb these relationships, but we should do so thoughtfully with full awareness that what we do may have consequences remote in time and place. Mm. Yes. So that was 1962. Yeah. That she wrote that, which you could say that right now, couldn't you? Absolutely. And it would still be so relevant. And I think as in Map for the Heart, I I (coughs) hear like, strong resonance the same as that you know the same Mm. depth of absolute conviction and and of love you know yeah yeah and this one's a building one right oh my god the best book ever dirt cheap the mud brick book (laughs) (laughs) would that be number one on your list of books if you had to write a list then uh, i mean i i wanted to build a, a mud house so i was in my 20s but it took till i was 55 yeah that's how long hmm um, to get to that point, but um, they wrote, Our house intrigues people, not because it's unique in any special way, but because it feels different. Mm. The same can be said for most other owner-built homes, no matter what materials were used. They're usually the result of innovation and improvisation that takes place as the building is in progress, like writing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He says, overall, we found many people were unaware of the exciting possibilities that exist when limitations of conventional design and materials are removed. um, All it takes is some care and imagination and readiness to get on with the work. And if you lack materials, there's always the earth. It has a lovely natural appearance. It's easily worked, provides excellent insulation. It's highly durable and it's free. (laughs) So I've... Yeah, it's got a lot to recommend it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's got amazing illustrations in it. This one, yeah, isn't it? the um, oh, the know. book, the, yeah. the house that he built for fifty dollars. 
Yeah. So it's dangerous to read things like this. Mm. I don't, you probably can't see it from there. This is really rude. Here, see a very small picture of something you can't see at all. <laughs> How satisfying is that for you? But it, anyway... It's my, an incredible book. <laughs> my, my son gave me a book a few years ago called um, uh, Earth Floors, which I read five times, and then I went, I'm doing Earth Floors. Mm. So I put dirt floors onto my, <laughs> into my house. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Yes, yeah. it is. It is beautiful. Yeah. You've got a couple more there. You've got... All right. So Joy Cowley, of mm-hmm. course, of course, who's been my mentor all my life. And who called you her teacher, I believe. Yeah. And some blog she wrote. Yeah. Which is, was... And we taught together, Joy. Mm. Um, we, but her daughter was my best friend because Aww. we were both naughty and talked a lot and we got made to sit next to each other. Yeah. And... That was just dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And we both had fathers that ran off with a young woman called Jenny. Right. Yeah. Right. Young bendy woman. Mm. And um <laughs> Oh no. Oh no, 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 we didn't hear it. We started a couple of minutes late, didn't we? So we you want to hear you really want to hear Gillian's things before But I'll so Joy, of course, is like the Bible you go to when you want to learn how to write. You just read mm. one of her books. So that Joy. Do you want to read us a quote from that? We all want to listen to you. Oh, uh, Joy? Yeah. Do you have one? Oh, yes. Good. Um, uh, she's so good in how she can make her characters. There's conflict all the time, but over just over small things. Yes. It's like the secret of good writing. Because mm, it's what keeps it going and it's what keeps us yeah, interested, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So on the other side of the foxgloves, they surprised a small flock of sheep with big lambs beside them. The ewes started, stared and rushed away with their lambs into the trees. They're a bit wild, aren't they? The girl said. Sheep are always like that, said Hannah, feeling annoyed. They have a wildness in them people never see. They only pretend to be frightened. Would you like to pick some flowers? Where? Here, Hannah waved at the foxgloves. The girl wrinkled her nose. My father says foxgloves are weeds. He says they're poisonous. Hannah filled up with a flood of feeling for the delicate flowers around them, each one a tiny cave of purple speckled with white. Some are and some aren't, she said. Anyway, we call them rabbit gloves. Hmm. Why, asked the girl. Well, because there aren't any foxes in New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) That's so, so good. And you so, want to finish for us with a Mary Oliver poem, eh? Yeah, and Mary Oliver. I, I, I went to New York with an um, editor of the place where I was teaching. Mm-hmm. And we went into this big bookshop and he said, oh, I'll choose a book from my country for you and you choose one for, for me from oh, New Zealand. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And, and is this what he chose you? And he chose me, Mary Oliver, who I hadn't heard of, but that, this was in 1990-something. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. And I had tried to find a New Zealand book and the only one was Morris Shadbolt. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I thought Joy would have been there or Margaret Mahi or... Yeah. Yeah. Um... Or Fiona Farrell. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I bought him Morris Shadbolt. And, um, you were the winner. Morris Shadbolt. For, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, but, and he en- enjoyed the, that, that book as well. But. Yeah. Uh, the Pinewoods. This morning, two deer in the Pinewoods in the 5 a.m. mist. 
in a silky agitation went leaping down into the shadows of the bog, and together across the bog and up the hill and into the dense trees. But once, years ago, in some kind of rapturous mistake, the deer did not run away, but walked toward me and touched my hands, and I have been ever since separated from my old comfortable life of experience and deduction. I have been ever since exalted. And even now, though I miss the world, I would not go back. I would not be anywhere else but stalled in the happiness of the miracle. Every morning I stroll out into the fields. I believe in everything. I believe in anything. And even if the deer are wild again, I am still standing under the dark trees. They are still walking toward me. Mm. Well, that what a lovely place to end that, like right at the heart of mm. wonder. Wonder. Yeah, right yeah. at the heart of wonder there. Mm. I think we do have some time for some audience questions. We're going to ask you to use a microphone for the questions because this session is being recorded and then everyone will be able to hear you again on the recording no pressure now that you don't want to ask any questions <laughs> has anyone got any questions for Gillian? Kia ora. just uh just because of my tardiness and also uh, my ignorance perhaps can you tell us what drew you to the Ida in the first place I may have missed that at the start <laughs> no good question um cheapest place in the country <laughs> um, <laughs> um my marriage broke up, and my kids had all just left home to university or marriage, and um, so I could go anywhere. And my only grandkids are in Queenstown. Well, they mm. were, the only ones. So I wanted to be within an hour and a half. And the further you go from Queenstown, the cheaper it gets. So, mm. um, but, so Omakau, which is about 40 minutes from me, was still like three times what Oturihua was. Wow. Yeah. So when you're a writer and you want to have time to write and be able to do part-time work and just get by, you just want to live somewhere that's affordable. Wasn't the cycling that attracted you? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but also um, I wanted to buy, live somewhere that didn't look like – because we used to live on a mountain in Nelson in the beach forest. So I didn't want anything green – because it was too sad, so I wanted a different landscape that was dry hills and the light on the hills. So, mm. yeah, that's how I end. But it's so chance, isn't it? What where you end up? Yeah, yeah, it's just chance. And also, um, a sheep farmer's fashion collection. Say more. Yeah, Eden. You know Eden Hoare in the. So he was a sheep farmer who, who was really interested in where the wool went and how it ended up into high fashion. Yeah. So he travelled around and he bought all the winning gowns of all the um, fashion designs and things, and he kept them all. And I was writing a novel on fashion in the 60s. And so <clears throat> how I ended up in Oturihua was I had to go through there to Nazarby to Edenhaw's wool shed where the fashion collection was. Right, and it was amazing. Just I bet amazing. It was. Yeah. So the count, our, our council's bought it now. It's in storage, but one day it will be out again. But he he saved those dresses. That's amazing. incredible. Yeah, it sounds like people know about that collection. Mm. Yeah. 
But, so because of him, I came through Oturihua and saw the for sale sign. So that's yeah. a great story in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Does anyone else have any questions? Mm. I don't actually have a question, <laughs> but I would just like to um, emphasise or um, back up what you're saying about the importance of putting in submissions when they're asked for it over the environment. Mm. I've just recently um, joined an equestrian Facebook group and they, there's someone there becoming very aware of the fact that there's no one pushing equestrian interests and they could very well mm. be getting locked out of lots Where to of ride things. Or... Yeah. Yeah. And so... Yeah. I've got a mm. supplementary question from your statement and thank you for that. Mm. You can just give them back. Uh, um, do you <coughs> see that there's a really good place for social media in um, uh, awareness and in submissions? And I guess in writing and stuff as well, do you, do you engage with that? And in, if so, in what ways? I'm, pro- I'm probably on the far edge of uselessness. Mm. And then, I mean, our environmental group, we're, we're, except now we've got two young people in it, but before we were like, 65 to 80 in the 80s. Mm. So social media wasn't a, like a big thing. Mm. <laughs> but there's some great groups like Choose Clean Water, which is all young people. And yeah. they're travelling around and they're getting funding and they're doing videos. Yeah. That's, that's those, the people who are more familiar with it will do a wonderful job. Yeah. But whether they're telling people to write submissions, but... It, it just seems like a boring thing to do. But incredibly necessary at the same time yeah, is because, what you're saying. Because yeah. where if, if you don't put your voice, then there's no voice against commercialisation. Mm. Mm. And, and the councils, for all their faults, do mm. make it easy for us to make submissions. Yeah, you can just fill in the blanks, don't you? You, you mm. don't, Yeah. Or, or, as you were saying, write a poem. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Mm. Well, if nobody else has any more questions, this is the moment where I say going, going, gone, then we will end the session on time, Gillian. Mm. And it remains to me to thank you all so much for being here um, and being Mm. the audience, to thank Otago University Press again for being the sponsors, to thank Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival for having us here Um, and having us all walk the heartland together this afternoon. Um, If you do want to buy a copy of A Map for the Heart, you can do that just outside um, at the University Bookshop table. And Gillian, you will sign the Mm. name. Mm. Yeah, Gillian will Mm. add her name to her name. And thank you so much for today. It's been such a pleasure listening Mm. to you, and just you're so generous with your with your time and with your life and with your heart. So thank you so very much. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.